The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 16 through 47. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. It is a joy to uh, be here and to open the word of God with you. My name is Isaiah Lewis. I'm the church planning resident here at Coram Dale. And I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and open to John 5, the passage that was just read for us. If you don't have a copy, there should be one under your seat, and you can turn to page 837, and uh, you'll be on the right page. I wonder if you've noticed in our culture how impossible it is to get away from calls to action, whether it's from holiday marketing campaigns or ads on our smartphones and our TVs uh, to get out the vote campaigns that happen every three months or however long it is, to the share and the like buttons on social media. Everything seems to be calling us to action, to issuing or to issue us a challenge. Social media, it should be no surprise, has become a significant platform for some of the most interesting and uh, perhaps we should also say absurd calls to action. Some of them are not so absurd. They're more interesting than anything. How many of you remember the ice bucket challenge back in 2014 or so? There was this challenge going around where if you were tagged on social media, you had to record a video of a bucket of ice cold water getting dumped on your head. And it was all in the name of awareness for ALS, so pretty good cause. But some other causes uh, were just, well, rather ridiculous. How many of you remember the Tide Pod Challenge? Yes, this was the challenge uh, where you had to record yourself eating a packet of detergent. Believe it or not, that went viral. Thankfully, not for too long, social media platforms took it down because you may imagine there might be some health difficulties associated with that snack of choice. And then there was the challenge to eat a spoonful of cinnamon in under 60 seconds. Anyone remember that? Uh, that did not help the medicine go down, I can assure you. This also has some significant health um, non-benefits associated with it. But all of these challenges went viral. Tens of thousands of people, sometimes millions of people, were talking about them. Whether they were dance-related or food-related or pain-related, these challenges often attracted a following. You may be wondering, Isaiah, what on earth do social media challenges like that have to do with John 5? And I'm so glad you asked. 
The answer to that question is another question. What is the fundamental challenge that Jesus makes to human beings? We could state it a little more personally. At the most basic level, what does Jesus expect of you as you consider what it means to follow him? There have been lots of answers to those questions throughout history. Some would say that the fundamental challenge to human beings that Jesus makes is simply to embrace a different religious belief. Attend this church, follow these traditions, say these words. That's the fundamental challenge Jesus is issuing. Others would say, no, no, it has more to do with believing a different set of doctrines. Jesus is challenging you to swap one interpretation of Scripture for another, to grow into your intellectual understanding regarding the depths of the Bible. That's the challenge Jesus is making. Still others would say, well, actually, no, it's much different than either of those options. The challenge Jesus is issuing to us is to follow his example and to live lives of sacrifice and humility and love. While there are elements of truth in each of these answers, each of them also misses the point. What Jesus demands of mankind is that we allow him to entirely reshape our worldview. Jesus expects nothing less than absolute surrender of our pre-existing ideas about reality to his authority and then allow him to reshape those ideas and perceptions according to actual reality. In our passage this morning, Jesus is in conflict with religious people. They have assumptions about a number of worldview-shaping questions. And their worldview prevents them from believing in Jesus and receiving his words. Their pre-existing framework for reality doesn't have room for the Jesus who is. The Jesus who himself defines reality. But that's actually a significant problem in any age as it relates to coming to Jesus. Those already pre-existing assumptions about reality get in the way of a simple response of trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And therefore, he deserves our absolute trust and worship. So our passage confronts us with this reality. Discipleship requires deconstruction. In order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to deconstruct. Now, I know that deconstruction is a very popular idea right now in our culture. It's all the rage to deconstruct your faith, which usually means abandoning your faith. I don't agree with everything that's done in the name of deconstruction, and I don't think you should either. But I want you to see that the basic impulse behind it That impulse to to question everything, to question all your assumptions, to rethink it all, 
that's actually an imperative for all followers of Jesus. To follow Christ, you must allow him to reshape your framework for living because discipleship requires deconstruction. Let's see how this plays out in John chapter five. We're gonna make three observations and then we come to the end, we're gonna ask three questions that will get more to application. Verse 16, take a look at verse 16. That verse describes the Jews as persecuting Jesus. That's a word that actually comes from the courtroom. It could be translated prosecuting Jesus. This is an informal trial of sorts. They aren't just attacking Jesus, they're bringing charges against him. In his defense, he immediately begins to dismantle and call into question basic foundational beliefs that his hearers would have had. Their judgment of reality is fundamentally flawed. It's skewed because their assumptions about reality are themselves flawed. So by way of background, let's ask the question, what are the assumptions that Jesus begins to deconstruct, the assumptions on the part of his hearers? Well, number one, he confronts their assumptions about the nature of God, the very nature of God. Verse 18 tells us that the murderously angry crowd is angry at Jesus for two reasons. One, because he healed at the Sabbath, healed on the Sabbath, and two, because he made himself equal with God. Those are the charges that are founding the prosecution. Jesus redefines the reality of who God is. He defines God's very nature. Notice Jesus doesn't back down on those charges. He actually doubles down. And he says, in effect, yes, of course I work on the Sabbath because I'm equal with God. Therefore, I must work. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now in that Father-Son language, in the minds of his Jewish listeners, he would have been attacking the very foundation of their faith. That foundation is monotheism, the belief that there is only one true God. That was the cornerstone of the Jewish faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6, a, a passage that every good Jewish boy or girl had memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus seems to be attacking that. What Jesus is actually doing is he's pressing against his hearers' incomplete understanding of monotheism. He says he himself is equal with his father and yet distinguished from his father. He's dependent yet co-equal. Ironically, the Jewish faith left no room for the one true God to be the God who he truly is. One God in three persons. And Jesus confronts that. Second, Jesus confronts their assumptions about the very nature of life and death. The Jews knew that God gave life and that God judged. But notice how Jesus presses those two closely held beliefs and he reframes them in light of who he actually is. 
Look at verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, which none of his hearers would have argued with, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, Jesus's point is clear. Since he is God, he has the authority to give life and he has the authority to judge. And that authority has been given to him by the father for one very specific purpose so that all would honor him just as they honor the Father. But Jesus also redefines the very nature of life and the nature of death itself. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but he's passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will what? The dead who hear will live. To be alive then, to have eternal life, is to hear Jesus' words, to count them as true, and to believe that the Father sent him, and then to orient life entirely around those truths. And in failing to see that life is found in believing Jesus and taking him at his word, Jesus' opponents had misunderstood life itself and death, and both in a catastrophic way. Certainly, they had some details concerning life and death correct, but they failed to grasp this fact that in the here and now, life, true life, eternal life, or as Nebraskans, we might say, the good life is found not in Nebraska, but in Jesus's words. And death is found in refusing to hear Jesus's words. So Jesus, is, Jesus confronts their assumptions about the nature of God, about the nature of life and death. And third, he confronts their assumptions about truth itself. In this informal trial, Jesus has given his own defense, verses 19 to 29. And in essence, he has said, I am more than you think I am, and I have the authority over life and death. In the next section, Jesus then confronts his opponent's refusal to believe the witnesses who have taken the stand on his behalf. Truth itself and their failure to believe the truth is what's at stake. Now he knows, verse 30, that his own testimony concerning himself is accurate. But in order to draw the hearts of his listeners to him, he begins to list four or five different witnesses that affirm everything he says and everything he does. Verse 32, he says there's another that testifies of him. He's referring to God the Father, who internally testifies to Jesus of Jesus' own identity. But then he goes on and he lists 
John the baptizer as a witness to who he is and what he does. We've already seen that in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 in our study of the Gospel of John. But then he goes on in verse 36 and he says that his own works are witnesses because they have been given to Jesus by the Father. Those works are the miracles that he's performed or as John, the author of the Gospel of John, describes them, the signs, the signs that point to the fact that Jesus is not simply a man. He is the God-man sent by the Father. And then number four, God the Father is another witness. This time he's not witnessing internally to Jesus, he's witnessing externally. And what, are, what is the means by which God the Father witnesses to who Jesus is? Well, it's the scriptures. Look at verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus doubles down and he confronts the Jewish religious leaders on significant worldview issues. He challenges their closely held assumptions on the nature of reality, those assumptions that are keeping them from trusting him. And he does so in a way that strikes to the very core of how they view themselves and of how they relate to one another and to God. And friends, Jesus hasn't changed. He is still issuing the same challenge to mankind today. And he's doing so to draw hearts towards him, but he is still making the challenge. What Jesus demands of mankind is that we allow him to radically reshape and reform our worldview. If we are to follow Jesus, we must first be willing to have our worldview deconstructed by him. The truth is, and perhaps you didn't actually realize this about yourself, all of us are zealous quilt makers. Perhaps that didn't cross your mind before that that's one of your hobbies, but it is, I assure you. I'm not talking about one of those like manufactured quilts that you can pull off any department store shelf. Do you remember the, the old homemade quilts that maybe you've seen in antique stores or seen pictures of, or maybe is at grandma's house, where they would take bits and pieces of cloth from worn out clothing or drapes or towels, and when, when those had no longer become useful or had passed their usefulness, they'd cut out squares and form them together to create this beautiful functional quilt? Well, you and I do the same things except we do it in a religious way. We build our own religious quilts. We've all taken bits and pieces of religious thought. We've taken ways to express reality. 
We've taken sentiment from the culture around us and we've taken all these things from a variety of sources and we've sewn them all together to create a quilt, mismatched pieces put together to form a whole. However, unlike the beautiful quilts that may be at your grandmother's house, these religious quilts are absolutely worthless. They're nothing more than man's attempt to define reality. And in John chapter 5, Jesus is calling us to burn our religious quilts. While we may not have the same assumptions about reality that Jesus' hearers did, our quilts are no less insufficient to describe reality. And the underlying categories are remarkably the same. So there are now three questions I'd like us to ask of this text. Jesus asks these questions, or rather answers these questions, and in so doing, he challenges our framework for reality. Question number one, who is God? Question number two, what is sufficient evidence for the nature of reality? And question number three, what are you looking to receive in this life? Question number one, who is God? Jesus' words reveal the truth that God is three persons with one divine essence. Now we describe this unity, or rather we describe this as Trinity in unity, or we could say simply Trinity. One God, three persons. Christianity at its foundation is Trinitarian. Without the Trinity, there is no Christ. Without the Christ, there is no Christianity, and we're wasting our time. All the historic Christian creeds declare the Christian faith to be Trinitarian. The Athanasian Creed is quite clear on this point. At the very beginning, this is how the Athanasian Creed continues. Whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic or the universal faith. What is this faith? That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. The creed is asserting that you can't enter this thing called Christianity without understanding you are entering the worship of one God in three persons. The Trinity is not some metaphysical discussion for theologians or for philosophers. It's not a word that should cause us to, uh, to zone out or cause our eyes to glaze over. No, it couldn't be more relevant to life right now, true life. What's the vital connection between the Trinity and true life, the good life, eternal life? Well, listen to how Ian Hamilton describes it. Eternal life is not endless existence, but it's life in fellowship with the triune God. Knowing God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is eternal life. So friend, hear Jesus clearly at this point. God is who Jesus says he is. Jesus came from God. As the only God who's at the Father's right hand, Jesus has made him known to us, John 1, 18. And Jesus is who he says he is. 
He claims to come from God. He claims to be equal to God. He claims to represent God. And Jesus is calling you to deconstruct your understanding of the very nature of God and to reconstruct it based on this reality. Jesus is God who came from God and who represents God. As Scott Swain says, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, meaning he's the Father's Spirit-anointed Son, that is the foundation of the Christian confession. So who is God? He is simply Trinity. Question number two, what is sufficient evidence for the nature of reality? As human beings, we hate to be scammed, don't we? Don't those phishing emails you get in your inbox just drive you nuts? We have so many words in the English language to describe being scammed, and some of them are quite fun to say, actually, like hoodooed or bamboozled flim-flammed, hoodwinked, or duped. Some of you are going to try to use all of those words this week in conversation. Our inner critic often demands evidence. And that's not a bad thing. For instance, if a lawyer showed up at your doorstep tomorrow and told you that you had unexpectedly inherited $5 million dollars, And the only thing you had to do to secure that $5 million was to write him a check for a $10,000 retainer fee. You might do well to be skeptical. It probably would be worth your while to seek some proof before you wrote that check or bought a Bugatti Chiron or bought lifetime Nebraska football tickets. Evidence is a good thing. And desiring it is part of our innate, natural longing for knowledge of the truth. Do you see what Jesus is doing in this passage? In his grace, he's meeting our deepest longings. He's giving us evidence for his claims. It's quite possible that you've been sitting among friends in this church body for years bringing up objection after objection to the claims of Christ. Friend, Jesus knows that entrusting your life to him seems risky. It seems like something that could open you up to heartache or even harm. It actually may kind of seem like a scam. But Jesus, in his grace and in his love, meets you in this passage with exactly what you need. He has met any and every reasonable standard for the burden of proof. And he has done so for your sake, for your salvation. So we don't have the luxury to sit back and to continue to call for witnesses. In fact, it may be that continuing to call for witnesses is simply one way of evidencing we're just avoiding reality. We just don't want to submit to the authority of Jesus. So perhaps it's time to start doubting your doubts and to start trusting the trustworthy one, Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, 
who came from God, who represents him. He has supported every claim he has ever made. He is full of grace and truth. He has met the burden of proof and he will humbly receive you if you humbly receive him. Who is God? What is sufficient evidence for the nature of reality? And our third question, what are you looking to receive in life? What are you living for? The idea of receiving something is all over the end of this chapter. Look at verse 41. You'll see that Jesus describes himself as not looking to receive glory from people. In verse 43, the religious people surrounding him don't receive Jesus, but they would receive anyone who came in his own name. Verse 44, they desire, rather than receiving Jesus, to receive glory from one another. These verses are getting at a fundamental reality, and that is this. Every person is a glory seeker. We were made to worship. We were made to be in awe. We were made to value some things more highly than other things. In fact, we were made to value that which is the greatest reality, God himself, above everything and everyone else to the point that that reality shapes our interactions with the rest of creation. We were made to be glory seekers. But the fall has twisted our value system. So now the story of humanity is the story of worship gone wrong. And now we are glory thieves. Rather than giving Jesus the honor and glory he deserves as one who is God and who is sent from God, we too often would rather seek glory from one another, from our peer group. We'd rather find our value in what others perceive us to be. We're seeking glory from others. And that's true whether we're followers of Jesus or not. Like how often and do I get tripped up because I'm looking for my value and my worth in what those around me think. I start operating in a way that is looking to gather some level of affirmation or, or some sense of value from those around me. How often I posture in front of peers in order to receive the honor that Jesus alone is due. And I suspect if you're honest, you can resonate with that. So we need to repent from our glory thieving. We need to believe the words of Jesus that he is of God, from God, equal to God, and worthy of all honor, and therefore worthy of us valuing him in that way, and then seeking after him in a way that disregards the glory and honor that any earthly person could give us. But if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, understand what Jesus is saying in these verses. He's saying that until you want to receive eternal life more than you want to receive glory from your peer group, you will not come to Jesus. So what is the solution for glory seekers turned glory thieves? The answer is to not stop thinking glory. 
seeking glory. Notice Jesus says that there's a glory that one should pursue, but this glory comes from God, verse 44. What is that glory? It is the weighty glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That glory that results in the forgiveness of sin and a relationship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. It is not a cheap passing grace, or rather glory that fades from our peer group. No, it's a grace that secures abundant life now and eternal life in the future. It's the grace that that rescues glory's thieves and restores us to glory seekers. So let me ask you again, what are you looking to receive in this life? Is it the cheap passing glory from your peers that will block you from Jesus? Or is it the God-given glory of grace which leads you to Jesus and to receive him at his word? The fundamental challenge Jesus issues to mankind is to deconstruct your worldview and to rebuild it according to reality because discipleship requires deconstruction. So how do we begin that work? That sounds intimidating. It sounds daunting. It sounds scary. So how do we start that? Well, look at verse 37. You search the scriptures. They bear witness about me. We begin by coming to the scriptures, not as an end in and of themselves, not to increase some intellectual understanding of the nature of God, but no, as a pointer to Jesus Christ. He is full of grace and truth. He is the one who is meek and lowly of heart, gentle and ready to receive sinners. The scriptures in and of themselves do not contain eternal life. Jesus alone is life. The scriptures point us to him. And that's what we're doing this morning. That's what you should do in your community group, in your family, in your personal life. Return to the scriptures because they bear witness about Jesus. But don't just stop there. Actually come to him. Believe his words. Receive them as true. Receive his gift of eternal life and worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, forever and ever. Let's pray. Triune God, you have continued to pour your blessings out upon us. Your benefits are more than we could number and we honor you. Lord Jesus, you were born for us. You lived for us. You spoke truth for us. You died for us. You were raised for us. All of this for us and our salvation. Spirit, in Jesus, you stand ready to seal to us blessings for this life and for a better life to come. So now, Father, we ask that as you have fed us with the bread of life, you would 
Give us grace to reshape our worldviews so that they correspond to reality. Grant this, Father, for your Son's sake, because he is worthy. And to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, but one most gloriously incomprehensible God, to you be all honor and glory and praise forever and ever and ever. Amen.